0: titled the message, Agonizing Prayer. Agonizing Prayer. Last week's message was titled, Desperate Prayer. If you're reading through the Psalms and you're just like, whoa, things are getting more and more intense. Well, they are. And if you came to that conclusion in your own reading, I'm glad that you are reading the same Bible that I'm reading. And that is that today's Psalm is more painful, more difficult, more hard than last week's Psalm of Prayer to God. Today's psalm is one of seven, which are called penitential psalms. Penitential psalms are psalms written in times of deep repentance or deep penitence. These. This is the first of these seven. If you want to write them down, you can. It's Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. So that's, if you want a little bit of a memory aid, you got Psalm 6 and 32. 6 plus 32 equals 38. 38 is the next one. And then there's Psalm 51. And then double Psalm 51 is Psalm 102, so that's the next one. And then Psalm 130, I don't really have a memory aid for that. And then Psalm 143, also can't help you there. But those are the seven penitential psalms. This psalm is different from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 in that those two psalms we know are dealing with the response, David's response to his sin with Bathsheba. But this psalm, Psalm 6, we're not sure what the context is. We're not sure what was happening exactly. We don't know what the scenario was that caused David to write it. But we do know that this is uh, to the chief musician, to the song leader, the music director for the temple with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp. So this is kind of like a guitar. He's like, hey, you're the guitar player. I want you to write music for this poem. Turn this into a song that we can sing. Now, this psalm is an escalation from last week's psalm, Psalm 5. Times have gone from bad to worse, and so has the mood of the psalmist. His desperation has increased. His agony has reached a high point, at least higher than last week. And so we are here today in Psalm 6. This brings us to point number one. Point one, agonizing repentance and comfortless rest. Agonizing repentance and comfortless rest. To the chief musician with stringed instruments on an 8 stringed harp, a psalm of David, O Lord! Do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So. The structure of today's message, each main point is two points, agonizing repentance, point one, and sub-point two, comfortless rest. So if you're taking notes and you want to have a really evenly outlined outline, um, point one, agonizing repentance and comfortless rest, sub-point of point one is agonizing repentance, verses one through three. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. David's opening plea is that the Lord would have mercy on himself, on David, that the Lord would not rebuke him, would not rebuke David in wrath or anger. His body and soul are in agony and he is crying out to God for mercy. This psalm contains a greater, excuse me, a greater level of desperation and agony than what has been previously seen. Further, this psalm being the first of the penitential psalms contains something that the previous psalm did not. If you remember the previous psalm, it is this cry to God for relief from his enemies. This psalm contains this acknowledgement or recognition of the chastening hand of God. So, this is a difference between Psalm 5 and Psalm 6. Psalm 6, he's recognizing that this is God's hand upon him. So in other words, the previous psalm spoke of David's cry to God for relief from his enemies, but this psalm cries for relief from the hand of God. The following things are mentioned here. God's rebuke, God's anger, God's chastening, God's hot displeasure or wrath, it might say in your translation. All four of these things are referred to here. Rebuke, anger, chastening, and wrath. The idea that God might discipline or chasten a Christian is a difficult topic for the very Reformed, the very Protestant Christian who grapples with this idea, particularly at an emotional level. For example, you might find yourself asking a question like, if Jesus paid it all, why would I ever suffer for my sin? Right? Doesn't that follow, that, that question? Or let me rephrase that in a a little bit easier to understand kind of way that shows the folly of the question. If Jesus paid it all, why can't can't I do whatever evil thing I want? It's the same question, it's just a little bit clearer. Overall, it's the wrong question with the wrong implied conclusion. You know, when people ask questions, oftentimes they're they're, they're not asking a question, they're making a statement. Someone might say, well, what do you mean? And what they really mean is, I don't approve of what you just said, and I'm giving you the chance to retract it. In this question, if Jesus paid it all, why would I ever suffer for my sins? That's sort of like asking if, uh, since Jesus died for me, then that means I can do whatever I want, right? Come on now, I'm supposed to be able to do anything, huh? So that has a faulty conclusion that's assumed as a premise for the question. That might be called begging the question, I'm not sure. It's definitely not raising the question. A better question than if Jesus paid it all, why would I ever suffer for my sins? A better question is: if Jesus paid it all, why wouldn't I live my whole life in committed to, to committed devotion to God? If Jesus paid it all, why wouldn't I live for Him? That's the, the framing that the question should have. Since Jesus paid it all, I'm going to see not how far from God I can wander and still go to heaven, but I'm going to see how close I can draw near to God while still on earth. That's the appropriate way to think about this whole question. We can plainly see that there are often consequences for our sins. And these are at times handed out by God. These are handed out by God, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. If you, I know most of you don't have a car, but a few of you do, if you drive your car three times the speed limit, it would be foolish for you to tell the police officer who gives you a ticket, Officer, Jesus paid it all. I'm not going to pay this ticket. That would be stupid. That would be foolish. That would be ridiculous. He would probably, hopefully, arrest you for saying something that dumb. That, 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 those words, that concept, that idea should just never cross your mind ever again, much less come out of your mouth. And the foolishness that you've brought to the name of Christ deserves more punishment than before. <laughs> Jesus might have paid for your sins, but you're going to pay for your speeding ticket. If you steal from a bodega, or dare I say, jump the MTA turnstile, and get caught, it would be foolish, wrong, or even sinful to accuse God of wrongdoing when you have to face the just legal consequences for your crime. And yes, if you're in the habit of jumping the turnstile, I haven't seen any of you do this, but I've seen lots of other people do it. I am saying that is a crime and you deserve to be arrested. You're not a victim of over policing if you get arrested for doing something like that. That's not mass incarceration. And if you tell the officers, Sir, Jesus paid it all, I can jump this turnstile, that's the wrong conclusion. Now, you guys laugh at such silly illustrations, and I use these practical, very tangible and silly illustrations to help you see it a little more clearly in some of these practical things. But what we often do is we take it into stuff that's more complicated, but really, it's actually just as straightforward. It's not any more complicated. The Bible is clear that it is the love of God that disciplines us and
1: chastens us when we sin. Y'all
0: know what text in the New Testament addresses that in its clearest form? Anyone know? Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is all about this. You call yourself a child of God, but you're never disciplined by God. You're not really a child of God. God lets you run wild and do whatever you good and well please, get into all kinds of trouble, and there's never any consequences. What the Bible says is you're not actually a son. You're not actually a child of God. Because what father is there who lets his kid run wild doing whatever he pleases without disciplining him, without instructing him, without correcting him? The Bible's clear. It's the love of God that disciplines us and chastens us when we sin. It is the love of God that compels him to stop the sinning Christian, even when it is in the form of red and blue lights and handcuffs. And so David is crying out with his agonizing repentance. "O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O oh Lord, for I am weak. O oh Lord, heal me for my bones are Troubled. Whatever David's sin was, I'm not sure what it is that he's talking about right here, but he's recognized it's a sin against God and he's asking God to have mercy on him because that sin that he's committed against God has actually had some practical ramifications, including its impact on his own body. My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. My second sub-point is comfortless rest. What is David doing while he's calling out for relief of this deep distress? What is he doing while he's crying out for help? Well, he's waiting. Lord, rescue me. Lord, help me. Please turn your wrath away from me. Well, what is that waiting like? That waiting is awful, it's horrible. Maybe not all waiting is this bad, but this waiting is that bad. It is truly horrible. Do you know that feeling? Maybe you don't. Maybe you can't relate to that, but I can, and I'll tell you what it's like when you're crying out to God while waiting for him to answer, and the only thing that you feel while you're waiting is more pain. The more you cry out, the the more escalated the pain gets. You ask for God to rescue you, to bring you out of this deep darkness, and nothing happens. And in that time of waiting, sleep is gone from you as you toss and turn in your bed and you cry out, why? To God. What's worse than when you cry out to God for rescue and nothing happens is when you cry out to God for rescue and things get dramatically worse. That happens sometimes. And when that happens, you often find yourself asking a lot of really big questions. The greatest of these questions is something like, do I even
1: believe in God at all? Why didn't you hear me? Why didn't you answer?
0: Why is the only consequence or answer to my prayer an increase in my sorrow? When this happens, you are shaken at the very core of your being, and your body trembles, and your soul feels utterly detached from its foundation. Your sleep brings you no rest, and your rest brings you no comfort. See, during normal times, you think about going to bed, and you're like, oh, I I can really... Stand and nap right now, like that would be great. But in this level of distress, the thought of going to bed is like, all right, great, so I'm going to just go lay in bed and toss and turn and my mind is going to be racing with all these terrible thoughts and it's not actually going to help. I'm going to wake up just as tired or more tired than beforehand. Or I might have these horrible nightmares. This is the type of situation that is happening right now. Agonizing repentance and comfortless rest brings us to our second point. See, I told you it was dark. This is a darker chapter than the previous chapter. Point number two. Agonizing mortality and covenant mercy. Agonizing mortality and covenant mercy. Verse four says, Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? Now, as far as my points go, I have um, listed this on the slide: agonizing mortality and covenant mercy, for the sake of parallelism. Parallelism is not a like biblically inspired concept. It's just a thing that preachers do sometimes, and uh, it's the thing that Andy does every so often. But my subpoints are in reverse order. So my my first subpoint is covenant mercy because that's what verse four talks about: covenant mercy. Return O Lord deliver me. Oh save me for your mercy's sake. Did you see it? Did you see the covenant mercy there? Now maybe if I didn't put the word mercy in the subpoint, but there's actually a reference to God's covenant in that word, mercy. When it says for your mercy's sake, that word mercy is this Hebrew word, hesed. And hesed is the word for God's covenantal love. Sometimes it's translated in the King James, uh, loving kindness and tender mercy. It's like a mouthful of words for this one concept, which is God's covenant keeping love or the Old Testament word for the New Testament concept of grace. Unmerited favor. The goodness of God poured out on us as sinful people based on the covenant work of God for us. So this covenant mercy first. uh, For your mercy's sake, which is this word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, God's covenant-keeping love, often translated loving kindness and tender mercy, or just mercy right here. Do you remember the covenant that God established with David? I'm sure some of you remember it, but some of you have never heard of it. So let me describe it for you. This guy named David, he was a hero of Israel, kind of like George Washington for people who like America, you know, he was this great king. He was this great ruler. And when David was established as king, God made a covenant with him. He made a promise to him, which was, uh, you, let me just read what I wrote so I don't trip over it. I will give you a kingdom. I will put a descendant on your, of yours. I will put a descendant on your throne who will reign forever. In other words, this, is going, this throne, this kingdom is going to be you and then your son, a son of David, who will reign on your throne for forever. That's pretty cool. Most of us don't think in those terms because most of us really aren't royalty. So we don't think about having a throne or having dominion or authority or kingship or lands or nations or any of that sort of thing, much less having it forever forever. And most wealthy people, they accumulate all this wealth, and then they're like, well, my kids are probably going to blow it. So I'm not actually going to give a whole lot to them. Maybe I'll pay for their education, but they got to work for themselves to, to like, not be a trust fund baby who is like a horrible person. This is totally different from that. He's saying, no, I'm going to give you a throne, and your descendant will sit on it forever. Now we know... That that descendant of David, the son of David, who would sit on that throne and reign on the Davidic throne for forever is Jesus himself. This is the mercy of God, the covenant-keeping mercy of God, the covenant that God made with David that is then relevant for David as David is in this time of deep distress. Well, why is that? Well, imagine David, let's just say it's the same scenario as Psalm 3, 4, and 5. It's not, but let's just work with that running for his life from Absalom. He's hiding in caves. He's sleeping under trees, behind rocks. He's on the run. He's, people, his enemies are trying to kill him. And he, he might wonder, okay, I, I know that I'm supposed to have a son who will sit on this throne. My current, the, the son of mine is trying to kill me. This is, this is not the guy. Lord, how are you going to answer this prayer if I die a premature death? Sorry, how are you going to answer this promise if I die a premature death? You promised, you made a covenant with me, therefore you can't break that covenant by having me slaughtered by the sword of my own son. That's not part of the promise you made. How, God, how how are you going to answer this promise you made if I go out like this? Now there's a few things which hopefully have some relevance or comfort or encouragement to you. Consider for a moment the legal aspect of the prayer, the covenantal component to David's prayer. Have you ever prayed kind of like this?
1: Have you ever prayed or
0: pled the promises of God? God, you promised this thing. And on that basis, on the basis of your promise, which is based on your character, I'm asking you to answer. And I'm telling you that if you don't answer, then it's going to be breaking your promise. Now that's a bold prayer. And you better make sure you get your facts right and your genres of scripture right. Because it's really easy to take things that are not promises and twist them into promises and then wrongly pray. But I think that people of our stripe or Christians of our types of churches don't even go that route at all. We're just like, Lord, if it's your will, then help us to whatever nice things. Amen. Have you ever built a case in prayer like a lawyer? It might look like something like this. Do not forget your mercy. God, on the basis of your Mercy. Hear my prayer. On the basis of scripture, it seems that the Lord wants us to pray this way, that we would remember his promises and that we would remind him of his promises and his revealed will in our prayer. For example, let's just be a little practical here. God, it is your will for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You told us that. You told me to ask you that. So I'm asking you for that thing. And by that thing, I'm asking you for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm asking for that. And these circumstances which I'm facing happen to be contrary to all of that. So on the basis of that, on the basis of your will, I'm asking you to change my circumstances because these circumstances violate
1: your word.
0: I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you on the basis of what you told me in the Bible. I'm begging you to put a stop to these things. These circumstances are contrary to your revealed will. These actions and events do violence to what you've told us in the Bible that you want for us. So I'm pleading with you to put a stop to it. I'm begging you to bring me relief from this harmful action or person who is raised up as an enemy of God to stand in opposition to what you have told us or told us to do. In other words, this whole concept of prayer that I'm contending for right now is a prayer that is built like this. God, you promised. such God, you told me the following. God, you promised this, and I'm bending my will to align with those very promises, so I'm begging you on the basis of your character, please hear my prayer and rescue me. Save me for your mercy's sake. Hear me because of your covenant-keeping love. I am your son. Do not give me a stone when I've asked for bread. You told me you wouldn't. Do not give me a serpent when I've asked for fish. You've promised. You don't do that. So have you ever considered praying like that? Have you ever considered building your prayers in such a case that you're building a case like a lawyer would to say, here's the evidence. Here are the facts of this situation and here's what you've promised.
1: I think we're so afraid to ask
0: wrongly that we often don't even ask at all. Much less contending with God, which actually used to be normal for Christians to do. So that's subpoint one, covenant mercy. Second subpoint under point two is agonizing mortality. Agonizing mortality. Uh, verse five, let me read that. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? David has come face to face with his mortality. Again, we're not sure exactly what's going on in this, in this psalm. But when you read about the life of David in the Historical books, you see lots of opportunities where he came face to face with death. Like from, you know, David and Goliath, you heard about the story of the tall guy and he, he hits him in the head, he dies, chops his head off, he dies. Atheists love that. They're like, look, it says he died after he got hit in the head, but then he died after he got beheaded. Which is it? As if this is some kind of contradiction. Um, David and Goliath, David, the lion, the bears, David uh, fleeing from Saul, David and Um, Absalom, David, and all these wars. David has come face to face with his mortality. Whether or not he is about to die is not the point, but he is in such a desperate time that he thinks he is about to die. You see, David's cry for salvation and deliverance includes a desperate cry for rescue from death, which it seems to him to be close at hand. Please note, when you read this, you might immediately jump about four steps beyond into the logical implications of his question and say, Well, wait, is David denying the afterlife? Is David denying, like, heaven? No, that's not what's happening. This is not a treatise or an expose on the intricacies of the afterlife or heaven and hell or what will it be like when we are in the throne room of God? Because, you know, he very clearly says, in death there is no remembrance of you. So you might say, oh, well, he's an annihilationist. No, he's not an annihilationist. He's not saying that when you die, you're snuffed out like a cockroach to get stepped on. He's not saying that there is no worship of God After you die, even though it says in the grave, who will give you thanks. He's not saying there is no heaven because we very clearly read in plenty of other places in scripture that after we die, there is the judgment. And then the wicked are cast into hell and the righteous go into eternal life. And then in eternal life, there's all kinds of throne room scenes described for us in the book of Revelation where there is lots of giving thanks to God. There's lots of praise to God happening after death. That's not David's point right here. That's not what he's getting into. His point is not nearly so complicated. His point is, when I die, I'm not going to be able to gather with the saints in the temple, sing praise to your name. I'm no longer going to be able to participate with the worship of Israel. I'll no longer be there serving you He's not making a theological reflection about whether or not we sing praise to God in heaven. But rather, he's saying that when he dies, he will be cut off from the worship of God that takes place in the temple. He will no longer be able to participate in Israel's worship. And so on the basis of that, he's saying, God, if I die right now, my chance to serve you is over. Now, there is a very real sense in which if you step out of this building, you get hit by a truck, what happens? Well, either you suffer in a hospital bed for a long, long, long time, or you actually die. And then let's say that you die. Well, that means your life here, your work here is over. We'll put your body in the ground. We put a little date where you were born and the date that you died with a little tiny hyphen in between and maybe three or four words on your gravestone. But overall, the, the, the book is over. The story of your life is done. Here lies Matt Shorley normally pick on Trenton, but I thought I'd go after Matt today. And so this life is all you've got as far as your work of serving the Lord. And if that comes to a premature end, then that opportunity to do all that you can do to serve the Lord, that's, well, that's, that's over. As the Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So all those people that you know that you intended to witness to, you intended to invite them to church or to tell them about Jesus, well, you step out in front of a truck and you get hit. Well, now it's kind of over and it's too late to go be talking to them. That's the point. David is face to face with his mortality and he's saying, God, I'm about to die and I don't want to die right now because I still have unfinished business to attend to. And in this case, he's saying, I want to worship you more in the temple. I want to worship you more with the assembly. And so he's face to face with his mortality, and it's not a happy thought. Let's keep moving. Point number three agonizing weeping and corrosive waiting. Agonizing weeping and corrosive waiting. Uh, verse six and seven I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim, I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because Of all my enemies. First, agonizing weeping. Verse six, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. You know the people who like ugly cry and the people who like can somehow delicately cry and it's like aesthetically pleasing? Well, this is ugly cry. (sighs) This is terrible. This is not just like the little like, you know, single trickle of the tear that rolls down like the baby's face and you're just like, oh, that's so cute. I feel for him. No, this is like, like screaming, weeping, wailing, calling out, like you're, you're like coming apart at, this, at a molecular level. Weary from groaning, my bed swims. It's drenched. My bed is soaked. You ever cried so much that your pillowcase was wet? Like, like the whole, like not just a little tiny bit, but like you're looking for a dry spot because the whole thing was wet. It's like that, only more. The effect of this weeping and the and crying out to God, uh, this is the effect of weeping and crying out to God and finding no answer, and God sending no relief, no solution. I'm weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears.
1: He's really feeling it.
0: This is, this is way, way more escalated than last week's psalm. It would be great right here if I had a whole bunch of illustrations and stories about like, this type of sorrow. Perhaps you can think of some for yourself. Just imagine the worst thing you've ever been through and then make it a little bit more worse. That's what David's gone through. After this agonizing weeping that we have this corrosive waiting, his eyes waste away. My eyes waste away because of my grief. It grows old because of my enemies. There's a difference between that, like you, when you need to have a good cry so that you can get it out and feel better. And that's one thing. Then there's the other where you're crying and it's not helping. You're crying and it's not getting better. You're crying and you're not finding relief. You're not finding like that, that release of whatever those like stress hormones are, or whatever that kind of like come out when you cry and you're just like, oh. I feel good. I got, that, got rid of that. No, this is, I'm crying and crying and crying, and I feel worse and worse and worse. And now I can't see anymore because, I don't know, there was too much salt in my tears or something. My eyes are like being blurred, and my vision is a mess. And it's kind of that situation where you're, you're just an absolute mess and somebody that knocks on your door. I'm like, hey, it's a repairman. And you're like, no, go away. But then you realize, well, I need running water, and right now I have a Plumbing leak in the kitchen and I have to let him in but I can't because like, I look awful whatever this sorrow is that David is enduring this sorrow is destroying him it's eating him up from the inside out I would ask a question is this the same thing as bitterness I'm not sure But what we do know is that this extended, sorrowful weeping, whatever the agony of soul is that generates such a painful response, when that is extended, it can easily lead to bitterness. That that, that bitterness that gnaws away, it it eats away at your insides. But not just your soul, also your body. Because that's what happens. Your body and your soul are kind of like part of you. It's the reason why heaven is not just like kind of floating on clouds as disembodied spirits. We actually have bodies in the new creation. So here's a few common side effects of bitterness. Stress. Well, stress has a whole bunch of side effects. Heart disease, digestive problems. Anxiety, depression, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, poor sleep, weakened immune system,
1: and an early death. You can actually find
0: articles on websites like Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins about the benefits of forgiveness and the damage of bitterness. Like these these really read like like devotionals or little spiritual type but not spiritual in some kind of weird mystical thing, but honestly something much more biblically sounding, even if there is no scripture references in any of either of these articles that I read. They're just like, look, bitterness will destroy you. It will wreck your body, it will destroy your health. It will destroy your immune system. You'll end up with a heart attack. You'll have high blood pressure. You might have a stroke. You have all these problems because this bitterness that's chewing you up on the inside, it'll also cause an early death for your loved ones who have to put up with you. It'll cause your kids to have major emotional problems because they're having to walk on these eggshells, dancing around, trying to avoid making mom unhappy. But forgiveness or releasing that anger, that actually has the opposite effect of, of releasing the stress and, and letting go of that burden, those problems. David is feeling the physical effects of the consequences of his sin and is quite literally, these things are quite literally destroying his body. Have you ever known someone who would rather destroy themselves than let go of sin? Perhaps it's a life-dominating addiction. They're like, hey, we can get you help for that.
1: And the person's like, eh, I don't know.
0: Kind of like the way things are. If I make that change, then there's going to be certain costs to it. And I, you know, I just, I like my life as it is. You know, you're, you're sitting there pleading with the person who's got this oxygen tank and with the, the nose thing. They've got a donut in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and they're 200 pounds overweight. And you're like, buddy, you, you're going to die if you don't stop this. And they shove the donut in their mouth and say, well, I just, I like the way things are. So perhaps life-dominating addictions or maybe an all-consuming grudge that must be avenged no matter what a wrathful person who they they must get their revenge. And so they're angry and they're bitter. It's all they can think about. It's all they can talk about. You can't have any conversation with them that doesn't get back to that thing that they're upset about. And then, oh, by the way, they have every health problem in the book. This is like the slow version of a gunman who is so desperate for revenge to kill his enemy that he will chase his enemy across a busy highway to try to shoot his enemy and he ends up getting hit by a semi in the process. As he is consumed with his rage, he loses all perspective and loses all sound judgment and ends up destroying himself. You know how like, Twitter slash X is going through a lot of changes to its structure and systems and algorithms. And now it's like feeding you content that you don't subscribe to and don't follow. And then it's like, oh, here's some wild videos of some like police situation. So like the cops are chasing some guy and he just like jumps off of a bridge and then lands down on the road. And then he runs across the bridge and then boom, gets hit by a truck. Don't don't be that person. So you would rather destroy yourself than get right with God. So we have agonizing weeping and corrosive waiting while you're in that waiting time. But not really dealing with things rightly, it's destroying you from the inside out. Let's move on to our fourth and final point. Agonizing Relief in Christ's reception. If you're saying, Andy, we didn't get to Jesus yet. This has all been really dark. I would say, yeah, it has been really dark. And no, we haven't got to Jesus yet. But in case you haven't been reading the text, the text is really dark. says so in verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. This psalm does have a a turn in it. It does have this change of, of direction where there is relief. I almost said blessed relief, but it's agonizing relief. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all of my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Verses 8 and 10 speak of, this, uh, of these enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Verse 10, let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. It's like one of those movies. I don't have a movie in mind right now, but like kind of a war movie type situation where the person is, uh, I'm making this up. So if I, if I spill some kind of punchline, it's not real. Um, so, you know, you're, the, the, the main character is... Uh, scene and there's a big battle and all his buddies are dying and then he's about to die and then it's really dramatic and the music is playing and it's it's kind of it's gotcha and the last like five minutes are stretched out like a football game into like 50 minutes of of the drama and the heart beating and the looking back and forth and then the enemy's creeping up on him and he's hiding in the house or whatever the situation may be but then at the last possible moment maybe like the missile strikes and hits the tank that's coming towards him, or something. And he's in some way rescued. Well, that's what this is described here. There
1: is a relief. There is a relief, and it is um, here at the tail end of this psalm, in the midst of
0: all of this darkness, enemies being ashamed and the enemy being greatly troubled. The enemy turning back and being ashamed suddenly. And then my last subpoint is Christ's reception in verse 9. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. This is the basis for his confidence. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. On um, my New King James, the word Lord has a big capital L and then a small capital O, small capital R, small capital D. When you see it written like that in your Bible, what that means is that it's the divine name which we pronounce Yahweh. We see in the New Testament, Jesus says that that's Him. Jesus has heard. David's supplication. Jesus will receive his prayer. When we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. And that's for a reason. Jesus is the one who has made our access to God. He's the one who has made our access to God through his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And so we come to him in prayer. We come to God in prayer because of Jesus. That's why we say, in Jesus' name I pray. It's not in our own merit. It's not in our own righteousness that we come before the Lord. The song that says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to that cross I cling. Rock of age is cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. So we come before the Lord in prayer, knowing that he will receive us. Because if you're a Christian, he has already received you like a son to a father uh, baby Andrew doesn't have to beg me to be his dad I am his dad he just asks me for something I'm happy to say yes I mean it was more cute than the 16 month old going please he comes to me running up let's say I'm like sitting right here and he comes up and puts his, his hands right here on my legs and, and and or this happened one time he I'm sitting in a chair this is at the the Conference I spoke at two weeks ago. I'm sitting in the office waiting on something, and um, he really wants to go. He really wants to go find his mother. She was in a session. I was with him outside the session so that she could focus. And so he and I are hanging out in the office, like eating candy from the bowl, and he is just over it. He wants to go run around. So he literally comes up to me and grabs my hands and tries to lift my hands up, but you know, he's only this tall. So he's trying to lift my hands, and he's saying, Up, up. Please. And the camp director is sitting there watching all this. And I'm thinking to myself, Self, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go outside. This is a nice place to sit. Got a good chair here baby is confined in a safe space. He's not going to hurt himself or run out in the street or anything like that. Nothing bad is going to happen to him right now. And, you know, we're having a nice conversation. But my son asked me very nicely to please get up because he wants to go. So I looked over the camp director and I said, well, got to go. <laughs> so we got up and we went out. I don't know what we did next, but uh, he asked me. So we so I said, yes. But I'm delighted to do that because he's my son. Now, your kid could ask me that and I'll be like, sorry. <laughs> sorry, kid, I'm not your dad. Now, I'm not um, committing the, the convoluted version of the Patripassianist heresy where we're like, oh, Jesus died on the, oh, sorry, uh, the father died on the cross. I'm not mixing this and saying that Jesus is our father. Jesus is not our father. God the Father is our Father. Jesus is our elder brother. Jesus is the one who dies on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to the Father in order that we could be adopted into his, well, first we gotta be born again. We're born again, and then we're adopted into his family, so we become children of God the Father. We're not children of Jesus. So don't take any of this to be some kind of uh, Trinitarian heresy, which it would be if it was what I was saying. It's not, that's beside the point. The point is, Jesus receives us. He hears our prayer. He likes to answer our prayers. And that's true whether it's David or whether it's you. If you are a Christian, the Lord has heard your prayers. And he will receive your prayers.
1: Because he's received you. If you are in Christ, you've become a child of God by faith
0: in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this <clears throat> psalm that shows us the darkness of sin and the, the depths of this um, very, very painful time in David's life. Help us when we are in times of great sorrow and pain to find uh, comfort in knowing we are not alone and knowing that we are not the only one who's ever felt this way. And knowing that you will hear our prayers when we come to you. And that even when our bodies are wasting away, when we're not as young as we used to be, yet you are still, you're still there. You still hear us. And you will answer. I pray that you would strengthen our faith. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.